Back in 2016, we had the idea of making a podcast dedicated to screen music. We had no clue whether we'd get the guests, whether they'd have anything to say, whether it'd get repetitive or even whether you'd listen. Roll forward two years and here we are at Soundtracking celebrating our 100th episode. It's a milestone we're incredibly proud to have reached and to mark the occasion, we've compiled a selection of some of our favourite moments from our first 100 episodes. The diversity of what you're about to hear shows what infinite variety there is to the fine art of film and television music, which is exactly why you won't be getting rid of us just yet. So over the course of the next couple of hours, you're going to hear a who's who of show business talking film, including John Favreau, Nicholas Winding Refn, Edgar Wright, Ron Howard, Danny Boyle, Sophia Coppola, Justin Horowitz, Duncan Jones and Clint Mansell. But where else could we start than where it all began for us, our very first episode with the brilliant British writer-director Ben Wheatley, here talking about the weird and wonderful sounds of his film, A Field in England. Can we talk about A Field in England as well? Because in terms of like a soundscape for a film, you know, there's this throbbing almost. There's obviously soundtrack score in there, but there's also just noise and sound at seed level was that the intention well that one there's two things going well a few things going on in the field one is that jim williams's score is meant to be the first half is music that they can play themselves because there's no recorded music obviously there's you have to be able to make your own entertainment so that was all done on instruments and in meters of that period And then it turns into kind of Morricone via psychedelic rock. So it kind of does this journey of, as they do in the field, you know, they go from being normal to taking drugs and, and being reordered and readjusted. And also something that had struck us when we were making the film was that it's a proto-cowboy movie anyway, you know, because those floppy hats and the pistols are all the things that, straight after that time period, they all buggered off to America anyway, and then, then continued that look. So that was part of it, and then the other half of it is kind of a lot of rumbling cymbals and stuff, which is more Martin Pavey's end of the street, who's the sound designer on the films, on all the films I've made. So there was a marriage there, and that started in 
kill list where score crosses over into sound design and back. And on the vinyl release for Field in England, one half of it's Jim's score and the other half of it is um, Pavey's rumbling. <laughs> Which I've got a vanity credit on just so that I can have released a record. But um, I, I, don't, I don't pick up any of the payments on that because that would be a step too far. That Chernobyl track, whenever I hear it now, my head goes into imagining the film. I think it's maybe just because of that shot, it being so long and being so horrific. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the scar in your head that's causing those, <laughs> that, the linkage of those two things. But I'd had nightmares as a kid which were like that, but they were just like moving towards a tree trunk just really, really slowly. And the idea that a nightmare could be slow and just texture rather than clowns jumping out of wardrobes with... The, Daggers and stuff, you know, yeah. it doesn't have to be like that. It can be it can be something quite mundane that really upsets you. You tell an escape the fame, Whitehead! Then I shall become it! I shall consume all the ill fortune which you are set to unleash! I shall chew up all the selfish scheming and ill intentions that men like you force upon men like me! Ben Whitley, our first ever guest on Soundtracking, who made life very easy for me on my debut outing. Next up is another writer-director, the hugely charismatic Todd Phillips, the man behind the Hangover movies. I asked him when he starts thinking about music, which prompted a cracking anecdote about the financial perils of securing needle drops. When does it come into the project for you? It comes in writing. I mean, I write all my own movies, and when we're writing, we're always listening to music. And somehow in each movie, one of the things that's just on when you're writing finds its way into the film. On this last film, War Dogs, Pink Floyd, we were listening to one day, and we have a great sequence in this film that we set to Wish You Were Here. So, so you think you can tell Heaven from hell The heartbreaking thing about music and movies that nobody likes to talk about is how freaking expensive it is. So you get your mind set on a song and you just can't get off it and all of a sudden Pink Floyd tells you they want X amount of dollars or pounds or what have you and uh, you're just like, oh, please, no. (laughs) But, you know, you figure out a way to make it work. It's the one budget item that I don't mess around with. You know, when the studio tells you, oh, it's too expensive, you got to bring the budget down, I never touch the music budget because we always ultimately go over. So <laughs> it's <laughs> like always that. a struggle. It's yeah. always the big names as well that charge way more. Yeah, it's a real shame. It's, a real, yeah, it's, it's like, like the little kids, they're the ones that need the cash. Oh, Do you know what I mean? To stay alive. The, the like... little kids you can get for free. I mean, you can take advantage of those guys because they just want their music out there. But yeah, I mean, I remember on Old School, we used Metallica. And at that point in my life, I only made one other movie, but I remember DreamWorks being like, we're not paying this much money for Metallica. It was a big, it was a big, no, we don't, they go, we don't pay that much for a single song. But I fought and I won and we got Metallica, uh, Master of Puppets. And it's so effective and it's just invaluable. I mean, it's so worth it.
Well, I guess when you have something so weaved into the creative process mm-hmm. to remove that and replace it with something else, it's yeah, like it's, starting again. It, it, it's it? really hard. I'll give you an example on War Dogs. When they show up to Vegas to go to this arms convention where they yeah. meet Bradley Cooper, we had always had in Paradise City by Guns N' Roses as one of the great songs, and yeah. it just felt really perfect. number that was literally the largest amount would have been the largest i ever paid for any song ever wow and we even know them a little bit like we got to them personally and they just don't move on that number so we ended up replacing with Graham parsons which is good and effective and if you don't know that it was supposed to be guns and roses like i do it's it works well but every time it comes on i go fucking axel rose Todd Phillips bemoaning a money-grabbing Axl Rose. Now, the very first person I recorded for the show was John Favreau, who was an absolute joy to spend time with. After half an hour in his company, we knew soundtracking might just be a goer. In this extract, he talks about how he managed the task of acknowledging the incredible music of the original Jungle Book for his remake. This is about you and music. Really? Yeah, this is maybe slightly different from what you've been doing today, but I guess that's a really good place to start with Jungle Book because obviously it's your new film, it's wonderful, but when you come into something like that when it comes to music, there's a very successful collection of songs there. Sure, that's the part honestly that I was most (laughs) concerned about. Was it? Well yeah, I knew I had to use the music in the new movie and it was something that I was convincing Disney of actually that I don't think they understood how people, how well they knew the, the music, how well they knew the movie. They were gearing it more towards adapting the Kipling stories. Yeah. And slowly I, I worked in elements from the old film, hopefully not violating the new tone of the film. But that was another concern is if you use too much music, then it's a musical. And if it's a musical with animated animals, you know, you're, you're doing happy feet. <laughs> It's different, you know, which is a good movie, but it's not what I wanted to do. And so I was trying to figure out how much music you could put in without crossing that line. And a lot of the clues that I got came from the big five animated Disney movies where you could have a world where death exists and you could have scary moments even though the the violence is off screen it's still tense and kids will hide their eyes at points but then you also want to have silly songs and, and, and you want to have relief and so I found that Disney would use music often to counterbalance the intensity of certain moments of his uh, of his classic animations <laughs> Two, three, four. Martha, low in the 
Of course, the one element we're, we're leaving out is John Debney, who's our composer, who actually grew up on New Walt Disney wow. and knew the Sherman Brothers when he was a little kid, and his father worked there. His father used the clapboard on Snow White when they were doing reference, so he was around for the whole thing, and I think he really understood the musical culture of Disney. He'd worked in theme parks, he'd composed music for a lot of things, and I've worked with him. This is my fourth collaboration with him. Yeah. And I knew he was the right guy because I wanted him to just channel those deep childhood memories of what it was like being on that lot. Hi-ho! He was able to do for one song, for Bare Necessities, we went down to New Orleans and we recorded with Dr. John on piano and Kermit Ruffins on horn. We recorded Bill Murray in New Orleans with those musicians. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessity. Forget about your worries and your strife. So it took on an energy that was wonderful, and Bill Murray, you know, is the type of person who really picks up on his environment and is a real person who's very present and in the moment. And, and having him down there was great energy for the musicians and for him. And I knew for that song we could get away with it because we set it up with, he's humming it earlier, we set up that every, every, everybody's got a song, and here's a moment of celebration that felt like it could feel like it fit within the reality. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and strife. I mean the bare necessities, that's why a bear can rest at ease. Just the bare necessities of life. The other one, we deviated very far from the version of I Want to Be Like You that was in the 67 film with Louis Prima. That version of the song fits into the score of the, of the film. So it's using strings and horns, and so it, it fits into the fabric. Now I'm the king of the swingers, oh, the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop, and that's what's bothering me. I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll right into town. And be just like the other men I'm tired of walking around Oh, ooby-doo I want to be like you I want to walk like you Talk like you You'll see it's true And they like me Can't learn to be human too this was going to be something that felt more geared towards Christopher Walken. We changed the breed of the character from a orangutan to a gigantopithecus, which is this uh, extinct super fauna that existed in pre-Ice Age. Not an easy lyric to get in a song as well. No, but, but we brought in Richard Sherman. <laughs> yeah. 
who, when I told him that we wanted a new lyric because it's no longer the same story point, we thought we'd have to write the lyrics and maybe just get him to bless them. And I even wrote some stuff with the writer, Justin, and he said, these are good, but do you mind if I take a crack at them? I'm like, no, no, please. We didn't know if you'd want to. We're in a hurry. He says, no, no, what is it? Tell me about this creature. I said, well, it's a gigantopithecus. He says, what? Wait, hold on. What is it? I said, gigantic. He said, gigantic. Hold on. Give me a pen. He says, that's great. That's a great word. Gigantopith. Spell that for me. And he wrote it down. He says, do you mind if I try to rhyme it? I said, if you could rhyme gigantopithecus. And he came back. He rhymed it twice. Now you might think it's ridiculous that me, a gigantopithecus, would ever dream I'd like to team with the likes of you man cub. But together we'd have powers. All the jungle's treasures ours. I got desire. You got the fire. But the dream I dream takes two. So, ooh. I want to be like you, I want to use that flame just the same as you can do. Oh, how magnificent it would be, a gigantopithecus like me could learn to do like you humans do. Can learn to be like someone like you. Can learn to be like someone like me. And also we have Trust in Me, Scarlett Johansson. I got her to sing for us because she has such a great voice. And Mark Ronson agreed to, uh, to produce that. Trust in me. Trust in me. Shut your eyes. Trust in me. singing his version of Bare Necessities that really gets into the funky New Orleans sound <laughs> as the very last end credit song that doesn't really feel like it fits with the body of the film but somehow feels like it carries the emotion yeah, of the film. Yeah, that New Orleans carnival, exactly. everyone leaving there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly, like walking the, uh, down like, the like main a, street. Like a parade, yeah, yeah totally. Like a second line. And I love how it ends our experience. John Favreau on the music of Disney and The Jungle Book. Now, one man whose name has come up perhaps more than any other on soundtracking is Hans Zimmer. And one man who knows him well is the lovely Ron Howard, who I've now spoken to a couple of times for the podcast. Here, Ron gives us a little insight into why Hans is widely regarded as one of the world's greatest film composers. I guess it depends on the particular film how much it warrants contemporary music using tracks within the film that people know and recognize. I'll tell you an interesting experience that I had. Yeah. <clears throat> when I I'd worked with Hans Zimmer a number of times beginning with Backdraft, which was its own particular big melodramatic powerhouse uh, theme.
always admired Hans's range. You know, the first time I was aware of him was, was Rain Man, and then there was Driving Miss Daisy, and this is before he became this kind of epic composer. But I asked him to do Frost Nixon, but I said, I don't know how much score there's gonna really be, Hans, because I really wanna use a lot of songs. I think it'd be interesting to offset the kind of formality of these interviews and Nixon. I wanna put people in that era and remind them what 1977 was all about. And we actually sat around in, in Hans's studio, which is one of the most creative environments I've ever been in in my life. His studio in Los Angeles is fantastic. I can explain a little more to you about it because yeah. it's very unique and I, I want to go into it more. Yeah. But I even asked Hans and his team uh, of arrangers and so forth to come in and talk to me about which songs we should use. It's a Donna Summer one in there, I remember. Oh, right? yeah, at the end, there's a really <laughs> yeah. great Donna Summer song that I love. collected them, we began using them, and Peter Morgan, who wrote it and was also a producer of Frost Nixon, he said, I feel like this is trivializing the movie. I was really thrown by that because I, I was feeling pretty good about most of the song choices, but not all of them. There's a part of me that heard him and kind of agreed. And then I brought that comment back to Hans. And Hans said, well, I understand what Peter's saying, and I understand what you like about some of those songs. Yeah. And I think, without ripping anything off, we can connect the character to the period and the ideas that you think are being expressed through those songs in a way that will be more organic to the drama. Very intelligent, very thoughtful. Because he had never said, no, 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 I don't think songs are yeah. a good idea. resonated with all of us in, in different ways, whether I initially thought I agreed with it or not. I think by the end we only had two or three songs.
you know, I love that Frost Nixon score, and he wasn't nominated for it, um, I don't think, but it was very, very sophisticated, yeah. and it did a thing that Hans is very good at, and he did it again in Rush, uh, which is to acknowledge the, the duality of the story. And the this, period. And the period. Yeah. But this is what Peter Morgan writes, two, two individuals who seem at first glance to be a lot different from one another, but th you begin to understand where they're alike and he did it in a way both with Rush and with uh, Frost Nixon. And Hans identified that and found musical ways to help support that link that I thought was very interesting in both scores. Tell me a little bit about Hans's playroom. <laughs> Hans's studio, uh, I call it Hansylvania. You enter and there's these sort of red plush walls and it's a little gaudy. It's like almost a, a, a library in an old European country home. And got a couch, he's got his keyboard, he's got some big screens mounted, but he's got great art. He's got about, oh, a dozen or so guitars, because Hans doesn't advertise it, but he loves to play the guitar. He's got a samurai warrior helmet off in one bookcase, and various sculptures and things like that. Which and he it, wears whilst he plays the guitar. <laughs> I wish he would at least once. But it can either be a very private conversation, yeah. you, maybe the producer, the writer maybe, if the writer's in town, maybe no one else, maybe just Hans and the, and the director, or it can start to take on this other energy because he'll start inviting soloists in and some of his, you know, arrangers mm -hmm. and they'll come in and they'll start setting up microphones around and different people are playing different instruments, you know, there's a, an electronic cello, he's on the keyboard, somebody else is on a, on a piano, a grand piano in the back somebody else starts playing guitar. And soon, they're exploring the cues that Hans has written, but they start developing them and trying different things, and they'll even record it. And, you know, I think it rarely becomes the score, yeah. but it's often the framework for the evolution of the score. So Hans presents all these themes, and then he just basically says, what else? What else can it be? What do you think? And he often includes the director and, and sometimes the producer in that process, and it is so stimulating. It's not without its frustrations and dead ends, but it also you know, offers a lot of breakthroughs, yeah. and it's a blast. Ron Howard on the genius that is Hans Zimmer. It's always a pleasure chatting to Nicholas Winden-Refn, the Danish director behind Drive, Only God Forgives and The Neon Demon. The music is integral to Nicholas's creative process to such an extent he even uses it as he shoots scenes on set. When do you know when you need music to start a film or if a film doesn't, shouldn't start with music? You try it out. Because in Drive, you know, you have that pre-titles scene and the soundscape for that's phenomenal, that kind of pulsation and the sound of the gloves and car revving. And then it hits that kind of title scene with that music that's wonderful. Do you appreciate that or kind of the, <laughs> the power of that? I, I love music. I think that music and 
cinema or music and images really you know go hand in hand much more than words a story or even actors you know i mean film was created as a documentation and the first thing that was brought to it was music For a long time, it was just an instrument and a projection. And so they're very integrated in each other. If you usually say a truly great movie, you can also say the music was really good also. That's why the art of film composing is sometimes undervalued in a way of what it really means to a film. I don't do drugs anymore, so it helps me to, it, it opens up, music it opens you up and allows you to flow. And creativity is a lot about going essentially within more and more. And, you know, it's still interesting that at any given time you can play certain notes that automatically will make you cry wherever you are. That, that's how simple we are as people. And nothing else can do that, almost, but music. Because I play music while I'm shooting also. Okay. Sometimes even when they have dialogue, usually you say dialogue, quiet everyone, there's dialogue. <laughs> and sometimes I would do a take with music as they're performing dialogue. What kind of thing? It could be anything from ambient to more uh, rhythmic driven. Uh, I think on Neon Demon I used a lot of Georgia Moroder. There was always Georgia Moroder around. sound to that the beat came out of it and the, it's kind of a beat that a lot of alternative bands in the early 80s really embraced and now it's like everywhere but that was very counterculture in a way and very it was almost tech punk So Georgia Moroder, uh, but I would like, if there's an intimate scene, you know, you can play a piece of music that's very uh, soft or something that opens. And then I would do it again without music, and the performance uh, would all be a little bit different because you, 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 then you become maybe more technical-minded or you speed up the process more. But then I could take the dialogue from that scene and put it into the scene where there was music, 
because the looks and the flow between how they perform physically was so different. On Drive, for example, because I took so much dialogue out every day, yeah. I would play um, an ending by Eno, I mean, endlessly. I would just, for example, film Ryan or, or Carrie, and I would just shoot and shoot, and I would play this music, and, and they're looking and looking and looking, and they're like, am I done looking? I say, no, 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 just continue to look, because I was listening to the music, as I was seeing it. And then when I would cry, I was like, okay, now we found whatever it is that has to happen in this scene, because the music and, and Ryan and her, and especially Ryan and how he was able to, to open up to this flow of emotions that was very seductive. And so it was fun to play with those kind of abilities of what music can do to an actor. If, if you did that for one particular scene where he's killed the guy on the left and it's brutal and Carrie leaves the left and he turns around and you see a look on his face that you've never seen before he kind of knows, you know, that things have changed Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to heighten those emotions basically. Yeah Nicholas Wind and Reffin on how he uses music to get his actors in the mood the episode with Derek C in France is one of our very favourites here at Soundtracking, not least because he's such a great storyteller. And if you need evidence of that, look no further than this yarn about his lifelong obsession with Mike Patton of Faith No More, who provided Derek with a score for Place Beyond the Pines. Let's talk about Place Beyond the Pines. You mentioned Mike Patton, Faith No More, obviously. Mm who I loved as a kid growing up. Me too. Yeah, I mean, I found Faith No More first, obviously, with Epic. Right, because yeah. Faith No More had the big success. Warner Brothers gave Mr. Bungle a big contract, and John Zorn produced that first album. And I got that album for Christmas. I think I was, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, and I got it, and I was so confounded by it. I loved heavy metal music as a kid, but yet this was something way f- further out than anything I had yeah. ever been exposed to.
I went to go see a, a Mr. Bungle concert that spring, and I'll never forget, they were all wearing masks up on stage. And Patton up on stage had a bondage mask on, like the gimp from Pulp Fiction. Yeah. This is before Pulp Fiction, though. And he had horse blinders on the side. And there was a moment in the show where he got down on his knees and he started licking this bald security guard's head. You know, his tongue came out through the little zipper. And from that moment forward, he was my hero, you know? <laughs> I used to show up to his concerts, you know, for years and years. And when I moved to New York and went to the Knitting Factory and I'd go see Fantomas or I'd go see him doing some solo, you know, crazy stuff alone. And I'd always, like, have videotapes with me of, like, my student films that I'd been making or my home movies. And I just always wanted to work with him, you know. And I was that, that guy who was, like, waiting at, at the stage after the show. And one time I met Trevor Dunn, the bassist for Bungle, and... And Fantomas, and uh, you know, I didn't meet Patton. And I was like, Trevor, would you? I just would love to work with you guys. You know, would you give this to Mike? He was, he was like, sure, man. You know, and he, he was kind of annoyed that I was that guy. Anyway, years later, I was in a casting meeting talking about actors, and a talent agent came up to me and said, I have this guy that you have to meet. He's been on the scene for a while doing stuff, but he's starting to do movies now. Uh, his name's Mike Patton. He used to be in this band called Faith No More. You might have remembered him you know, from the... I was just like, stop. Don't say another word. I know way more about him than you do, okay? He's like my dad, okay? And he never knew it, right? I've been following him my whole life. I was like, can you set up Mike with me? And, and I met with him, and uh, he's just, he was my dad, and he kind of became my brother, you know? And uh, what, a, what a gift to work with him, and I, and I really hope I can work with him again. That is a brilliant story. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Please tell me you just turned up for at least one of those things in the gimp mask waiting to meet him at stage door. There you go. Really yes, freak him out. Yes. Completely freak him out. <laughs> Writer, director, Derek C. in France on the inimitable Mike Patton. Now, we've spoken to at least three people with a direct involvement in the Star Wars franchise about the great music heritage attached to it. One was the unassuming yet supremely talented British director, Gareth Edwards, who took charge of Rogue One, but when it comes to Star Wars, of course, the soundscape is not all about John Williams. I had this notion that you'd turn up to the Star Wars office and there'd be like a computer with a folder that said Star Wars sound effects. <laughs> exactly, yeah, the Death Star, exactly. Yeah. Commence primary ignition. 
you have access to all that stuff, all those things, you know, the, the sound of Darth's kind of breathing, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, anything you want, they'll give you it. But what we mainly did as the film was being put together was just stole from the original films. So you get a copy of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Jedi that's got the music separate to the sound effects, separate to the dialogue. Not the actual final movie, but whilst we were making it, we were grabbing all stuff from the original, because we knew where they were. It's like, yeah. I, need, I need the ooh sound. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, go to this part of like A New Hope and you know, you, there's like two places you can grab it. And... Yeah. I love the sound of the TIE fighters as well. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Rogue One director Gareth Edwards. Now, despite the Oscar fiasco, La La Land is nonetheless a fabulous piece of work, which did land the Academy Award for Best Original Score. And as well as speaking to director Damien Chazelle, I was also joined by his composer, Justin Hurwitz, who revealed the lengths you have to go to to get a killer theme right. With you guys, in terms of when you started properly working on this film, I read the music was being composed as Damien was writing the screenplay, which I guess is kind of how it had to happen for these two worlds to combine so beautifully and seamlessly. Yeah, as soon as he started writing the treatment uh, and then the script, I was writing the music. The very first thing he wanted me to tackle was the main theme of the movie, this instrumental theme we call Mia and Sebastian's theme, because it's so integral to the story and emotionally important, and he wanted to know what that would be and what that would feel like, and then from there we started expanding into the other themes of the movie and the other melodies that would become score and song. discussions that you had with Damien about that theme? I was reading the scenes that Damien was writing in the treatment and also I think we were just talking about a theme, a melody that was about somebody who was searching for love, who was searching for something in his life and likewise with Mia. They're both at similar places. They both have these big dreams and they both want to be in love but neither of them have that yet. So there's this melody that represents their love story and I think it was that idea that I was going off of when I was sitting at the piano trying to find it. started all this at a piano? Yeah, everything starts at the piano. I spend so much time at the piano early on, you know, before the movie's being shot. Obviously for a musical, you need to figure out a lot before the movie's shot, but I think any movie Damien and I do, we, we're going to want to know what the main theme or themes are before the movie's made, because it's good to have that in mind, and also just I need the time. Melody's really important to us, and it can take a very long time to find melodies, like the right melodies. So 
So for this movie, for example, I did 1,900 piano demos. Just 1,900? 1,900. Just, just finding early on, this is before I was, you know, arranging any vocals or orchestrating. This is just at the beginning trying to find the melodies because, you know, there were a lot of melodies in this movie, more than most movies probably would have, but... To find each piece of material, I would go down many, many roads. I would come up with a lot of very bad ideas, some good melodies, but not quite good enough. And then there would always be one somewhere in the process, deep into the process usually, where I would finally come up with something and Damien would say, oh my God, that's the one. That was the case for the main theme, me and Sebastian's theme. That was the case for other melodies that became City of Stars, Stars Audition, yeah. all of that. It was just me sitting at the piano for, in the case of some melodies, weeks on end, uh, demo after demo, until finally I had it. Justin Harwitz on his Oscar-winning score for La La Land. But film music isn't just about score, with needle drop and source music a key weapon in the movie maker's arsenal. One gentleman who is a master of that particular art is Danny Boyle, who once again blitzed us with his sonic firepower in Trainspotting 2. T2 is here, and it's here with a phenomenal soundtrack. At what point did you start thinking about the music? I always make my playlist, so I'd have a library already of stuff that for some reason felt connected to what we might be doing. Although I like sometimes to ask the actors about their songs. Yeah. Sometimes I do that and get them to give me their playlist, what their character's playlist is. So you're kind of like constantly looking for connections of things. But this one, yes, what started that process, but then I started meeting with Rick. And, and it was very interesting with Rick because Rick Smith from Underworld, they weren't involved in the first one except that we obviously got their permission to use Dark and Long from Dub No Bass with My Headman. Slippy, which was not on that album and was not a successful single that they put out. And I found it in HMV when there was a HMV on Oxford Street. Mm -hmm. I was just wandering around because I used to wander around all the time. And I thought, that's Underworld, Born Slippy, that's not on the album. And I took it home and played it and that was the end of the film. Yeah. 
on this one I said to Rick shall we do I'd worked with him on the Olympics and I'd worked with him on yeah. Frankenstein and Sunshine he was involved in as well with John Murphy and neither of us were sure what's it going to be I mean is it going to be needle drops like the other one in which case it's, he said it's your taste Danny not mine or was it going to be score a bit of score so we weren't sure and indeed we initially talked about approaching a lot of the songwriters from the first film to write a new song that was one of the ideas yeah so and then let's, let's ask Noel Gallagher and Mick Jones and people like that if they'll write a new song for it we thought like that and then we didn't do that and then Rick played me this version of Born Slippy this kind of reimagining of it and I was like and that was a key moment because it made me feel confident, not not feeling self-conscious about touching the other films musically, yeah. but bringing it forward if necessary. But it made me confident about if we're going to do it, change it, mm. so that you have a muscle memory it connects with, but it's new or different. Then, extraordinarily, Liam Howlett, whose number I have in my phone book because he did a song for, we got his permission to use one of his songs for Life Less Ordinary yeah. way back in the day, yeah. rang up. Still it's got like, the same phone, I like that. Yeah, the same like, Liam Howlett, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I hear, you're, I hear you might be doing train spotting, another train spotting. He said, do you want a remix of Lust for Life? And I was like, what? He said, yeah, I've got this idea for this remix of Lust for Life. He says, I'll send you 60 seconds of it. And he sent this 60 seconds through and it was like, oh my God. And I thought, how do I ring him back? I mustn't make a mistake now, this is so great. And he was brilliant about it.
didn't tell Liam this, but that idea was already in the script. That Lust for Life was almost like a personality in the film that was going to play a part in the narrative. It wasn't just like a needle drop. So they gradually begin to form around the material that yeah. you're working on, and it, it's always important to keep it as organic as possible. Danny Boyle on the soundtrack to Trainspotting 2, which brings us to another director who uses needle drop brilliantly, the wonderful Mike Mills. In this extract, Mike tells a lovely anecdote about trying to secure the rights to As Time Goes By for 20th Century Women. Play them. Play As Time Goes By. Oh, I can't remember it myself. I'm a little rusty on it. I'll hum it for you. Sing it, Sam. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you On that you can rely What was lovely about the film as well was it made me go back and explore the music from the films that are reference points for Dorothea, Annette's character, you know, mm -hmm. Casablanca, the Bogart films and things like that. And I don't know, it feels like it should be celebrated <clears> a little bit. Yeah, I love all that music. The hardest song to get in our movie wasn't Bowie, it was As Time Goes By by Rudy Valley because it's part of the Casablanca estate. gotta go to Warner's archive and they have a phone with no answering machine. And it's this older woman that protects all those old Warner films. writing via fax 
and, Who and, still has a fax yeah, machine? Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and you just get the sense that, you know, and there is a beautiful part of Warner Brothers. It's in Burbank, Los Angeles. Yeah. Los Angeles actually does have history. It's not like history here, but it, it is a history. And that's its history. You know, like Casablanca was made right by the L.A. River and by In-N-Out Burger, you know. <clears throat> and I find that kind of fascinating. So that we got to get into, like, the heart of the weirdness that is Warner Brothers archive. Yeah. It was really fascinating to me. And we had to fight and fight and fight and fight for that song. And I was like, God, it's so key. And that's how the film ends is as time goes by and then and then the credits go and then the buzzcock song comes up and to me it's like okay if, if you didn't get what the movie was about yet like hopefully <laughs> hopefully that'll that'll do it how did you resolve that uh, perseverance just keep going keep going because we don't have a lot of money and we're not like a big deal and they don't care so it's just like you gotta keep going keep going yeah worth it yeah yeah so worth it yeah mike mills on the casablanca classic James Mangold was an utter delight to spend time with, not least because of his relationship with Johnny Cash. He got to know Johnny during the making of biopic Walk the Line, which is one of the reasons he was so keen to use one of his songs in Logan. But there were others too. I encourage everyone to stay for the credits at the end because you use Johnny Cash. As soon as you hear his voice, I was like properly welling up. The most perfect choice of tune. Many people view my work as wildly eclectic genre to genre, musical biopics, cop movies, westerns. You know, I live in my skin, so I don't view the films as so different. They all feel united by whatever odd ticks my brain has. But in terms of Johnny Cash being a good fit for Logan, particularly this downtrodden, dilapidated, punch-drunk version of Logan, it was very interesting because, you know, when I was making Walk the Line, I had the honor and privilege to work with John Cash. And that script I wrote was with his guidance, and I have these incredible tapes I made for hours on end, both at his house in Hendersonville, Tennessee, and wow. also over the phone after June died, I would call him every Saturday and just ask him questions. And there was one day when the people around John, I felt like I had everything I needed, but mm. there were people who said, you know, you should keep calling him. He likes this, yeah. talking on Saturdays. And it was kind of amazing because I had this number I would dial for John's house. And I don't know if you've ever dialed a phone number and the person picks up before it rings. John always would pick up before it rang because he was living after June died. It's both sad and beautiful. He retired in their large house to a very small room and he had a cot and he had his guitar, and he had the books he cared about, and a phone, and he lived in this room. And so when the phone rang in that room, it was always just an arm's length away. So it was the miracle, first of all, of you, you dial these 11 numbers, and then suddenly, you, hello, and, and, but there was no ring. You just yeah. finished the last number, and so it was, hello. You're finishing off your sandwich. Yeah, you're you're, away, well, it's like it's a direct dial to God. But, yeah. but, but in one of those later sessions, um, shortly before he passed, I was asking him kind of random questions, and I said, what were your favorite movies when you were a kid? And he told me all this interesting stuff about James Dean movies later and all this stuff that was really interesting that I tried to use as much as I could in the movie. But the one he said when he was about eight or nine, he saw Frankenstein in local theater in Mississippi, mm -hmm. and it had this powerful effect on him.
said he looked around the theater and everyone else was scared of the monster. And he said, but he identified with him. And he said, you know, I saw that movie and I went back and I saw it again and I felt like I was just like him. I was made up of all these bad parts. And it was so moving. It brought me to tears when he said this, that a nine-year-old boy would feel like he's made up of all these bad parts. For those of you who somehow don't know, you know, Frankenstein was made up. Grave robbers stole the graves of dead criminals. When he comes to Wolverine, I think he's a very similar outlook on his mm. own life, that he's a character who recognizes somehow that he's cursed, that he can't have love or a normal life or never can. And whether it's the fault of his own mutancy or science or the world or intolerance or a stew of all those things together, he's a man who's come to recognize that he is cursed. And so I think there is something very hauntingly appropriate about John Cash's voice over a Wolverine movie. What a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names And he decides who to free and who to blame Everybody won't be treated all the same There'll be a golden ladder reaching down When the man comes around of the four beasts and I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him James Mangold with a heart-wrenching story about the late great Johnny Cash on Edgar Wright's insistence he appeared twice on soundtrack in last year once to talk about baby driver and once to talk about the music and all of his other work and it was during that episode we discussed one of the more famous scenes from Shaun of the Dead but in the case of actually songs specifically mentioned in the script, the Queen song, Don't Stop Me Now, was always in the script. And the idea really was we wanted to have this setup where this jukebox that was in the pub was on random and would just start playing the worst possible song at that moment, or the most incongruous song. So earlier in the film it starts playing If You Leave Me Now by Chicago when Simon's already suicidal about his girlfriend. <laughs> and then later when the zombies are attacking, it plays an utterly joyous song. most underrated song and I don't want to claim credit for his you booked me now however 
Back in like when we were making the movie, that song was so sort of underused. It isn't even in the Queen musical, We Will Rock You. They never sing Don't Stop Me Now, which to me was the most obvious mm. show tune that Freddie Mercury wrote. So I saw the Queen musical, and I love Queen, but I did not care for the musical at all. And Don't Stop Me Now was not featured in it. And that just compounded my decision to use Don't Stop Me Now in the movie. I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Queen. I'm going to resurrect I'm gonna use, it. I'm going to use that song in a way that the Queen musical doesn't. I found out later, I read an interview with Brian May later that he confessed to hating Don't Stop Me Now. And he also you confessed... Hate Don't Stop Me Now? Well, I think at the time that it came out, Freddie Mercury had got his own PR guy separate from the band. And he used to annoy Brian May by going, Don't Stop Me Now for single guys. Gotta use Don't Stop Me Now. So Brian May just admitted to actively hating the song because it was like, this guy would go on like that all the time. So I think that's why <laughs> Freddie's absence is not in the musical. <laughs> so it's funny to me, actually, that we used it in the film and we had to clear it before we started filming. Our film was not a, a big budget film, so it's actually thanks to Queen that they actually gave it to us at a decent rate. Yeah. 15 years ago, some bands were just completely off limits. Led Zeppelin might charge like a quarter of a million for a track. But I think the Queen Don't Stop Me Now one, they gave it to us for like 15 grand, which is amazing, and we wouldn't have a scene without it. choice if Queen said no our B choice for the the zombie fight scene was Rasputin by Boney M and we even we even had sort of roughly tried it out in choreography to see what it would be like I mean, it, it, it's a great song and it would have been a funny scene. But I think sort of the Queen song is a bit better known internationally and I think Rasputin, probably only people in this country in Germany know that song. Oh, <laughs> oh man, what you haven't heard that in so And so from one British movie maker who uses music brilliantly to another, Guy Ritchie. Guy joined me to discuss his reboot of the King Arthur legend, which, for obvious reasons, made the use of contemporary music complicated.
probably the first film where contemporary music hasn't been predominant. Well, not no, I wasn't going to say predominant, but an option I really. Up there, didn't I? You're quite did. good at filling in my gaps. Oh, it's fine. We're doing the opposite now. You're filling <laughs> in my gaps. It wasn't an option really, but it was because you still used existing music but skewed it. There's the track Wild Wild Betty. Yeah, it's used on the trailer, but it's also on the soundtrack now. Yeah, it is. Um, I like all that. That's very Sam old Lee. stuff. I like Sam very much. Young man. rather good Sam mm. are you familiar with any of his stuff we talked about him last time so yeah not he, the American version or the Chinese version yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh brother dear let my bed be made bright field bright of the woody night shade this young And he has this whole Lorik tradition thing down there, way of singing songs. Yeah. I'm not going to do it because it's quite embarrassing. Sing us a song, guy. <laughs> um, I'm quite good at Irish songs. Are you? Yeah. Like a party it, piece well, type sort thing. Of. Yeah, okay. Rocky Road to Dublin. In the merry month of May, from me home I started, left the girls into my nearly broken heart. Sleep with your father, dear, kiss me, darling mother, drank a pint of beer, my teeth and tears, I scalded enough to reap the corn, leave where I was born. Got a sad black phone to banish, boasting goblin, a band new pair of bogs, rattled over the box, frightened all the dogs, the rocky road to W123 for five. Hut there and turn it down. Well, in the merry month of May, now from me home, I started, left the girls and two were nearly broken hearted, saluted father dear, kissed me darling mother, drank a pint of beer, me grief and tears, this mother enough to reap the corn and leaf for I was born. Got a stout black phone to banish, ghosting goblins, a brand new pair of brogues to rattle over the bogs and frighten all the dogs on the rocky road to double one, two, three, four, five. Hunt to hair and turn them down the rocky road. Turn all the ways to double and make for lolly Now, the curious thing about that is there's quite a lot of old juju going on in that too. Cut a stout blackthorn. Blackthorn is 
used to ward off evil spirits. And these songs, I shudder to think how old Rocky Road to Dublin is. And again, it's sort of riddled with mythology mm. and witchcraft. Yeah. That might be the only witchcraft in the whole song. <laughs> After that, it's about sort of getting drunk on the key and all that. But, um, so I've got to digress there. I'm glad how keen you are to sing that for us. Because that's though. like 18th century Irish rap. <laughs> I quite like that idea. I quite like the idea of like in hundreds of years time what they're having the same conversations about what's contemporary for us now, which will feel like folklore in years to come. But it's not funny. I mean, you mentioned the word timeless. That's what I like. I like timeless stuff, which feels actually quite contemporary, but it seems to last. The boys of Liverpool will when we safely landed, call myself the fool, I could no longer stand it, blood began to boil, temper I was new as empowered all there and zile, they began abusing harami, so I'll say me shillelagh, I let fly, Galway boys were by and I was a hobbling with the lower hooray, the giant in the affray, quickly clear the way for the rocky road to double and one to three for five, hunt the hare and turn her down the rocky road and all the ways to double and make for Guy Ritchie demonstrating one of his many talents. Now, I love speaking to composers on the show as you get truly great insights into the many nuances of the scoring process. Like Justin Horowitz, Nicholas Brutel was utterly fascinating to talk to and gave us a few secrets regarding his Oscar-nominated score for Moonlight. such a short shooting period it's mm-hmm. insane when you think about it were, were you involved in that process were you part of that in terms of you know seeing how and what he was shooting and, and kind of taking that back in terms of what you would create for score you know interestingly um, not really I read the script and I talked to Barry and we had conversations before they shot the film Yeah. and then my next encounter with the project was after they shot yeah. and seeing an early cut of the film and that's always such a fascinating thing too because it's always remarkable to me the the way in which you know your perceptions of things from the script stage change or don't change yeah. when you see the early cuts of the film basically one of the first things i felt when i read the script was this it just had this feeling of poetry there was an intimacy and a sensitivity to the script and what was amazing to me was the way in which barry brought that feeling into the film that he created and the film it, it feels like this beautiful poem Among the first things I sent to Barry, actually, after some of our early conversations, I wrote this piece, Piano and Violin Poem. That's what I called it because I was trying to channel that feeling of poetry that I had from the script. That became Little's theme. What was interesting was there's this sort of intangible like alchemy I feel with with film music where you know again you have to try things out and yeah. when when we put it up against the picture it just felt like it was part of that world 
somehow. So the final piece of the jigsaw. Exactly, it just happens, and and I think so much of it is following those feelings and and trusting those feelings. But again, it's that collaboration that's so essential because I can do my best, but until a director also feels that way and we and we and we feel it together, yeah. Until that happens, you don't really know. And when we first spoke about how we were going to work together, you know, I said to Barry, it'd be awesome if you could come to New York a lot and come to my studio because I live in, in Manhattan. Yeah. And he did. It was amazing. He would come to New York and we would work for days on end in my studio. We would just, wow. we would like order Shake Shack and just sort of like, you know, <laughs> watch the movie and yeah. and try things out. And um, Would you play live along whilst you were kind of, you absolutely. know, watching it and going, what about this? And, exactly. I would, oh, wow. I would I would play for right in front of him and I would, you know, I have lots. Early on, it's a mixture of things early on because when I sent him the piano and violin poem, yeah. I had actually had Tim Fain, the incredible violinist who's a dear friend of mine, he performs in the score. I had had Tim come by because I wanted Barry to hear that idea already with a real violin. I didn't want to do sort of a mock-up. I wanted it actually to be a real recording of yeah. this. But at the same time, for larger scope pieces, you're always going to use some sample sounds and demo kind of sounds. Yeah. So I would do some of that in front of Barry. And what was great was we could try things out where I'd say, well, what if we totally change it? Or, you know, here's a crazy idea. What if we do this? You know? And that's the fun. Yeah. Um, because when you're in the same room and when you're hearing the same things and when you know you're looking at the same things, there's a immediacy, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. that if you tried to do those things over email would take yeah. a month and, you know, they can take five minutes in the same room. And you also get that energy of someone else watching and experiencing it at the same time. Exactly. Which is so crucial. You just feel things. Yeah. And you can talk about things and you can experiment. And so many things came from that, actually. Like, for example, um, I actually would experiment by taking production sounds and weaving them into the music that I was writing and actually using them as as musical elements. So wow. um, when you see Sharon look in Chapter 2 of the film looking into the mirror over the sink, yeah. um, you hear this kind of like air rushing sound. And that sound is actually the sound of Little in Chapter 1 pouring water into the bathtub that I took the sound and stretched it out. And so you have this almost like sonic memory that he has. Oh my gosh. And then you hear a hi-hat, like a drum, this very insistent rhythm. Yeah. And that sound is actually the last time Kevin and Sharon high-fived before all this tragedy had happened. Oh my, there's this so underlying hidden kind like of, a sim- yeah. Like a sort of like a symbolic correspondence. Mm. the type of things where I think, you know, if you try to write that in an email, like, hey, I have this idea. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that works. But, but Barrett, you know, what was so amazing was I would say, hey, here's this kind of crazy idea. And he, and he would say, well, show, show me. Let's see it. And we would try some of these things out. And I think what was so exciting was not only were we able to do that together there, mm. but Barry was so excited to explore these things. And I think when that's 
possible, then anything's possible. And then you find things together that you might never have otherwise found. Yeah. In the way that, that Moonlight is structured and the fact that it's almost like three mini films within a film sort of thing, when you were thinking and working on the, the score for it, was there an idea that there would be specific differences between each of those acts and those yeah. thematic things that come and go that sort of breathe in and out of the film as well? Absolutely. It was definitely something that we thought a lot about because of the three-part structure. I think it's a question of how do you allow for cohesion yeah. between the chapters while also allowing for a transformation because Little is becoming Chiron is, is black, you know, in chapter three. And it's one man and his journey, but at the same time, he is changing. Composer Nicholas Bertel on his majestic score for Moonlight. Now, I know I'm always going on about how hard it is to get women on this show, but it really is. One who was at the very top of my original hit list was Sofia Coppola, who I was lucky enough to talk to when she was in the UK promoting The Beguiled. Like her dad, she uses music fabulously well, and here explains some of the thinking behind her choices. like that as well when you are using contemporary music and score is that something you talk about with your music supervisor and your composer in terms of what's right and what's the right fit in certain situations and because with you it seems like you mainly use contemporary music when it could be there within the narrative if that makes sense yeah no it's like when it has some connection I mean usually it's something I start to think about when I'm writing the script mm. and then you know working with the team to help me put it on place and like with Marie Antoinette I was thinking about that period as from growing up as a teenager in the 80s that I think of 18th century as like new romantic music and Adam Ant videos and you know Susie and like just that they that culture really embraced that 18th century style and so I wanted to make it in that feeling and yeah. and um and I was inspired by Ken Russell's film of um Brown's List that was like doing history in a really pop way and in the spirit of these kind of irreverent teenagers <laughs> So I, I automatically thought I want to have that music and I want to have Bow Wow Wow and these bands that I loved and, you know, and, and that kind of spirit of new romantic teenage-ness.
write song, we put the specific music together. But then I mixed it up with like some, a stroke song because it had the <laughs> feeling of romantic teenage feeling. Yeah. I felt it connected to that. So it's always to support the emotions of the film. as not an inspirational tool but to take you places and to help form yeah. characters. Yeah, I used to um, always listen to music a lot when I was writing. When I was first writing Virgin Suicides, I was staying in London and I went to a record store randomly and they had Premier Symptoms Air Record and I'd never heard of it. It was right when that first came out and I asked the guy at the shop if it was any good and they said yeah and I just bought it because I, I don't know the cover or something and, I, yeah. and then I started listening to it when I was writing that script and I listened to it all the time when I was writing and it really felt like the mood of it. should talk to them about doing the music. So I contacted them and asked them to do the score. So that's how that came about. And then Brian, he helped me with the 70s music. You know, so it was a blend of score and the music of the period. on to music supervisor Sarah Bridge. Now we found out about Sarah when we spoke to John Ridley about his TV drama Gorilla. John had nothing but high praise for her which is hardly surprising when you discover the effort she put in for him on the show. Your ears must have been burning about two months ago, actually, when we spoke to John Ridley, uh, the director Aww. of Gorilla, who we had a lovely time with. What a nice man he is. He is such an Incredible. Nice and he was so grateful and thankful and complimentary of the work that you'd done on that show, because with that as well, it was obviously, it's a period piece, isn't it, in terms yeah. of, the, of the setting of the, the music? Absolutely. I mean, you used London-based Afrobeat bands from that period, like O.C. Vissa, for example. Yeah.
so you were really instrumental with the the live element of that and the music that was played within the narrative yeah. of, of the production as well so with that I guess you've got to be right in there at the start of it haven't you in terms of the, the I production was meetings. and um, working with the very wonderful John Ridley <laughs> on Gorilla was an incredible journey to go on and probably you know up there in my favourite projects that yeah. I've worked on it was you know each project is very unique particularly period pieces I'll start at script level so I will start reading all of the scripts understanding the time the place the culture and then and delving into lots of research on that project. So for example, Gorilla, uh, my research started with going into lots of musical archives, going to Notting Hill and Brixton and speaking to record dealers, going into People's Sounds, Honest John's, talking to individuals who were part of the movement at the time. Yeah. You know, going into academic research on the history of black music in the UK. That's amazing because I think people don't appreciate the level of work that goes into it. It's not just a case of, oh yeah, I've got this on my, iP- my, my iPod or whatever. You know, it's kind of, it's not, it's not the musical knowledge necessarily that you already have. It's about going and exploring as well, isn't it? Absolutely. I think my favourite part of the of any project is the research stages when you really kind of go in and delve in and you know essentially looking at cultural trends of musical immigration in the UK in the 60s and 70s for Gorilla for example and when I was initially looking at the early rise of Afrobeat and Afro rock it was definitely within the UK it struck a sonic chord with the creator and director John Ridley and so that's something that became quite a core part of the show and then the sound of the show. During that process, they found an article from Billboard in the US that they'd written about the UK and what was happening here in the very early stages of Afro-Rock in the UK, which really was 69, 70, 71. And within that found the name of a band called Noir, who were the first all-black progressive rock band in the UK at the time, and they only released one album. Fog, tingle and thick, can't see the right road, streets are thick. find anything more than that Billboard article on them so I set about sending it around to all of the record labels asking everyone if they had it to delve into their archives yeah. and I very much rely on those relationships with record labels and publishers as part of my role to be able to support me in the discovery and the unearthing of artists such as them and BMG turned up that they had the tapes in their archives so they were then able to in turn digitise those for oh, us wow. for us to be able to feature them in the show which was 
an incredible find. Yeah. yeah so. Well, John talked about that them specifically as well and how important that you unearthed this and you were kind of like, this has got to be, you know, this is part of the story. This yeah. is part of the journey of these people and these characters and this movement. Yeah, it was a, it was a magical moment <laughs> yeah. to find that. Gideon's old man, a feast on a strap. Caught him down, eternal life. Where his soul transcends his heart. Whoa, whoa. Kiss him quick, he has to pop. John was incredibly collaborative. You know, he threw me a few challenges along the way too, so he wanted all of the music to be performed and recorded live on set on the day. Um, so normally you would pre-record, quite often in my role, I pre-record with artists in a studio and then they're miming within ears on set on the day of filming. And yeah. it's a much safer, more economical way of doing controlled things. Situ- yeah, controlled yeah. situation. But, um, but no, the, yeah, John really definitely wanted to push boundaries and keep that kind of rawness yeah. and the real sound within that space, which was incredible. Do you like the um, challenge? I did. <laughs> I now know how to put on gigs on a regular basis. I was pretty much putting on a gig every week and bringing in Batline. And yeah, it was a new experience for me and a new challenge. And we were lucky enough to uh, get Femi Kuti to be performing the show, which was amazing. How did you manage that? It was part of the research. I was looking at, you know, Fella, his father was recording in London in 1971. And we were very kind of restricted to the year. So it literally was 69, 70, 71 that John mm. wanted me to pull music from. And so Fella was in London recording an album called London Scene at the time. And I just kind of started to think about whether or not we could contact one of his sons and to see if they would be up for coming across and supporting. And so we reached out to Femi Kuti via a manager that I know who's worked with him over the years and he was 100% keen to be involved you know it's politically a, a really important time in the UK history and something that he felt very passionate about. Did they take much persuasion then to, to do it and be part of the show? No it was kind of a timing thing you know and it actually worked out really well we had him in the country for two days it was an absolute delight to be around <laughs> and very fun and playful and cheeky yeah. and he, he just really embraced it yeah loved it it was great. When you look around Music supervisor Sarah Bridge on her work on John Ridley's Gorilla. It's not every day that you get to have a natter with the drummer of one of the world's biggest bands, but that's exactly what I was lucky enough to do with Radiohead's Philip Selway, who joined me to talk about his first ever solo film score. And it turns out his music for Let Me Go was very much inspired by the four women in the lead roles. Where do you start? Where did you start when you were starting to think about how it would sound and what the instrumentation would be? So the first place was to do like a mixtape for Polly of things, artists, styles of music, which I thought might work around. I mean, one of our first conversations, she was talking about where she came from uh, with film, you know, and she was very much influenced by kind of European films where mm-hmm. you know, it's all about the emotional journey rather than the cutting to the chase <laughs> yeah, yeah. and so you know there's a lot of space in that and so there's a piece uh, by Max Richter called Infra which he did for dance uh, with 
Wayne McGregor. And it was an amazing bit of choreography, an amazing piece of music. There's something about that. I took something from that, just thought, ah, no, that, that's in the right place. So I put together a selection of music around that and Agnes Obel, Melanie de Biasio as well. Yeah. What's that look upon your face? It seems you've got a lot to say But no words Flow seems to be gone. Let's sing the way through it. How about a new way to pray? Um, a big part of my record collection there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Agnes um, is wonderful. Isn't she just? Yeah, I yeah. mean, live as well, you're kind of transported yeah. to to a different world really there's something just quite special about her as an artist I think oh couldn't agree more mm, and yeah. so yeah so they're, as you see they're good, good reference points to yeah have. really great
and so from there, you know, I had the, the screenplay and I was really able to immerse myself in that and the characters, became very attached to the characters. And I was really struck by the four very strong lead characters, four strong female lead characters as well, which you don't come across very often yeah. either. Uh, and so that for me musically led me down the route of thinking okay that's a quartet it's it, actually as a performance between those characters that's a quartet um, and there's there's a warmth in what Polly uh, was putting together as mm. well and I felt that warmth was in the strings so that felt like a good place to be that's a lovely connection to make with it and think about it like that ah. kind of uniting those yes. characters yeah and also left a lot of space to play with in there musically yeah. as well. And then other instruments as well, which I thought would sit well, notably the musical saw, which is played by a musician friend of mine who've done a lot of work with called Quinta, and she's an amazing musician. I love that whole thing of actually as an instrument as kind of what it represents you know something there it's very practical very jagged but actually it's repurposed to something that's beautifully musical and it's just because kind of otherworldly sound to it so you have those elements and then themes started to come together I remember we were recording at the time the last Radiohead studio album Moonshape um, Pool that's the one and um, and so just we were just in case you'd forgotten <laughs> <laughs> and so we'd gone away to record and as is the case in our, our sessions they don't tend to get going till after lunchtime if we're lucky uh, so I kind of had the mornings there and so I was just starting to play around with ideas and that coincided with finding out that Juliet Stevenson was going to play Helga Schneider in the film and then suddenly there's a theme it's called Helga's theme and that kind of fell into place around that. Mm-hmm. 
interesting that when real people become attached to it, it can fuel the creativity because you can then visualise that performance mm. really, can't you then? Absolutely, and particularly for Juliet because immediately I thought of Truly Madly, deeply of, of course, that musical thread that ran through there. Yeah. And again, that put me in a musical space, I think. <laughs> but being able to visualise what that person would bring to that role and with each subsequent person who was cast, and it's just like, oh, okay, that takes it in a particular way. And then, you know, production actually started, the filming started, and to see the cinematography in it, which is um, Michael Wood, just incredible, just so beautifully shot. Yeah. And then there's the production design around it, um, uh, Alexandra Walker. All of those things, you know, you just see this world start to flesh out. And I think, you know, you kind of respond to all of that as you're going along as well. Radiohead's Philip Selway on the score for Let Me Go, his first ever. Someone who has sadly written his last is Johan Johansson, who tragically died in February at the young age of 48. Blade Runner 2048 director Denis Villeneuve worked with him on several occasions, so we thought we should share what he had to say about his friend, recorded before he passed away. Can we start with Prisoners? Of course. Because I loved that film. And I thought it was incredible performances and I just think it was almost all those pieces of a puzzle that just the synergy was incredible. Am I right in thinking that that's the first time that you worked with Johan? Yes, yes, yes. The thing is that at the time I was looking for a composer with a singular voice and uh, the movie needed that, that kind of... Uh, I wanted the music to to be like a, a snowfall, you know, I needed that... So <laughs> the, I wanted the, the music to have that kind of specific sensibility. I listen to tons of composers and that's the beauty of uh, working in, a, in a Hollywood is that uh, you have access to a lot of people and I remember having a, a pile of something like 40 and there was one that came out of a, a young composer that uh, was well known uh, in his own field mm-hmm. but me I, I haven't uh, I heard the name before but uh, I was not familiar that much and I, I just fall, felt in love with the uh, the strength and the beauty of his compositions and the singularity because I always feel that sometimes composers to hear a freshness sometimes that has his own uh, uh, voice mm-hmm. is, is not very common there's not a lot of uh, that uh, stand out and, and him there was something about him and I had a conversation and uh, I've, I met uh, 
this uh, humble and, and, and sweet and open composer that uh, this agreed to, to came on board with me. Mm. And uh, he composed, uh, uh, at the time, the best score I had ever, ever had, you know. I remember I was uh, on the 10th track, there was some powerful part, and, and, and uh, I was saying to Johan, he had composed uh, several tracks that I loved and one of them uh, there was still our part in the movie and Johan said you know what I would love to replace this and I said of course I would love to but uh, it's a big piece it's there for specific reasons and, and uh, I'm about to buy buy it right now the rights And uh, but if you want to try and he went he said to me in his cabins in the in the north <laughs> and he came back with one of the most beautiful pieces I've ever heard and, and I was so proud of him I mean uh, he nailed it I mean, he was able to bring something that was, for the movie, better, you know, it's, I was mm. so proud. And it brought so much uh, soul to the movie and, and uh, melancholia that I was looking for. And, um, and it was the birth of a, uh, a beautiful co collaboration for me. With that collaboration, does that collaboration start before you start shooting, whilst you're shooting, or, or when you start editing? In the case of Prisoners, it, uh, uh, Yuan came, uh, uh, if my memory is good, he had the screenplay and he came on set and and uh, saw the mood, the, the, the mood of the scene. The, he um, started early, uh, quite early on the process and uh, the goal was to uh, use as less temp track as possible and mm -hmm. to be in the, as much as possible in relationship with him from the start.
but that was just the part of a process that was definitely more uh, elaborated and, and mature for our Sicario in arrival. Yeah. Where then we knew each other and and uh, wanted to work again together. And um, then for Sicario in arrival, the first thing I was doing when once the screen tea was finished to, to bring him on board very early on. Denis Villeneuve on Johan Johansson, who will be sorely missed. Luca Guadagnino charmed cinema goers with Call Me By Your Name. Not much one for score, Luca prefers to use existing compositions such as the glorious Hallelujah Junction by John Adams. When the film opens, we have this beautiful music that introduces the film as well, which is that, is that's, uh, that's John Adams. Oh, is it? That's John a Adams? beautiful piece from it's John stunning. Adams. Yeah. A famous, glorious piece of piano for, by John Adams uh, um, that he composed, I think, in 1975 wow. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I spoke to a friend yesterday that watched saw the movie. Said, "I don't think this is a, a lounging movie. It's a modernist movie. It's all staccato. It's all angular." And I like that. And I think that the, the, you you are introduced to that attitude by the beginning of the movie, starting with this what we say in levare piece from John, which comes twice in the movie. film or just a piece of music that, that he had that's part of his kind of repertoire? John has never wrote any music for, for film. John Adams is uh, probably the great American composer alive. Yeah. Comes from the minimalist and becomes uh, uh, basically his own, his own, his own canon. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he has uh, worked on uh, so much uh, did he not work on Birdman and, and Shutter Island and stuff as well? Or am I getting confused? John Adams was used one piece in Shutter Island, Island. one piece in Birdman, Birdman but yeah. I, I must say, with a little bit of coquettishness, that the first time that his music has been extensively used by uh, a filmmaker in a movie is by me in I, I Am Love. love. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, um, I want to tell you the name of the piece because now it's not in my mind but yeah. I don't remember it but anyway yeah so 
John Adams uh, never made any soundtrack for any movies. Wow. Maybe one day I will convince him. Maybe. Please do. Well, that's the kind of. I love the, the relationship that's there and the fact that you've used his music in the past. I used his music in, uh, in I Am Love, A Biggest Splash, Call Me By Your Name. <laughs> I even used his music on a documentary I made called Inconscio Italiano. I don't know, there is something about his music that clicks into me. Luca Guadagnino on his love affair with American minimalist composer John Adams. Now, we always like to open our doors to actors on soundtracking with Daniel Kaluuya, Tessa Thompson and Hugh Grant, amongst those I've spoken to. Killian Murphy, meanwhile, joined me to discuss the latest season of Peaky Blinders, which is a show famous for its use of contemporary tracks. You'll see him in your head on the TV screen Hey buddy, I'm wanting you to turn it off oh, He's a ghost, he's a god, he's a man, he's a guru You're one microscopic cog in his catastrophic plan Designed and directed by his red right hand We know that David Bowie was a big fan Yeah and That was wonderful that he then was very encouraging about his music being used as well, which yeah. is wonderful to know that someone yeah. like that is a fan. Yeah, it's incredibly humbling, really, is this sort of, I suppose that's the emotion you feel. Yeah. And, and that record, you know, the last record. Black Star, yeah. Yeah, was, there was just some tracks in that just were just perfect for what Tommy was going through at the time, and like Bowie just had some <laughs> amazing sense that they would work those songs. Yeah. He was so, so generous and lovely about it. I love the fact that there's the randomness as well of people like Snoop Dogg being big fans. I love that story about him inviting Steve into his hotel room yeah. to talk Peaky. And what was it he said? Something about it reminded him of growing up in gang culture. And yeah, yeah, in, so in Los Angeles. Funny. You know, yeah, it's so random. But the, the, that's that's the, the like the, I've been the most unusual places and Peaky Blinders fans have approached me. You know, that mm. it seems to have this universality. You know, you never know what it is. Yeah. What makes it click with people? There's no one thing. Uh, and there's no set of formula, there's there's no algorithm, it just for some reason it connects with people. Look up here, I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. I've got drama can't be stolen. Everybody knows me now knowing how passionate you are about music and is it something that you've been you've been involved in in terms of artists or even approaching people or anything like that 
Well, yeah, I suppose in series um, two, I think it was. Colin McCarthy, the, the director, was very. He was a huge PJ Harvey fan. Yeah. And was really, really keen to see if he could get some of the tracks and get her involved. And I happen to be very good friends with Flood, who's you know produced all I of love her. Flood. Yeah, he's one of my favourite people. <laughs> yeah, me too. Terrible getting back to you on... He's still got that old-fashioned Nokia phone that he walks about with. It's really like, come on, mate, get up to date. <laughs> he is he's brutal with technology, given that he's a sound engineer. But, um, so he's, you know, he's produced um, Polly's records for years. Yeah. So I said, well, look, I can ask Flood. And then Flood got in touch with Polly and then they all sat down and then she ended up giving a lot of her songs to the show and then writing some new stuff. And Flood sort of took some of the, uh, some of the earlier studio tracks and kind of messed with them and made them into something new that fitted the show. The version of Down by the Water is perfect. She did a version of Red Right Hand, and it all came from people knowing each other, but then a sort of a, you know, people being mutually admiring of other people's work. So yeah. that's kind of how it came about. And I suppose because I am such a groupie, I tend to hang around <laughs> backstage at shows, and you end up meeting people, and you end up becoming friends with people in bands. And, and it's nice when you can say, look, what do you think about this? Yeah. Take a little walk to the edge of town, go across. Murphy discussing the music of Peaky Blinders and the brilliant PJ Harvey. Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri was nominated for seven Oscars, with Frances McDormand and Sam Rockwell scooping the awards in their respective categories. Martin McDonough wrote, directed and produced the movie and spoke to us with great eloquence about the musical elements. This included a couple of memorable moments involving Sam. There's a couple of brilliant musical moments that I wanted to talk about. There's one uh -huh. that involves an ABBA track. 
which is very funny. And it was like that, whoa, was not expecting that. That's a little left field. But it wasn't what he was listening to, I believe, as well. This is a little thing. Who, t- who turned you in? I might have seen him talk about it somewhere. Oh, really? Oh, I haven't <laughs> seen that. I've been, I've been Googling everything. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> Reggie, I believe, he might have been listening to. Yeah. When you're about to film that, he's got the headphones in and he's just doing a kind of little dance in the station. Are you just letting him pick something to listen to? or? In that sense, yeah, because it's not going to be picked up on audio might, because yeah. you're always going to use something yeah. that you know, you've know you chosen and you never know about clearances for those things, so you couldn't yeah. have the real sound. So only he could hear what he was uh, <laughs> listening to and semi-dancing to. But I like, like if you say semi-dancing. Yeah. <laughs> Try uh, harder next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, his character isn't a good dancer and Sam is a great dancer. And I think that's why it works, is that he is listening to something completely other than the, the thing that we're saying he's listening to. So he's just off the beat the whole time. Yeah. But it, his character is off the beat the whole time. Yeah. Um, why ABBA and that song? It's, it's an incongruous choice for a man like that, for a southern uh, racist cop yeah. in Missouri. ABBA isn't the first uh, thought that you would have for him secretly listening to. But that's why it's funny, I think. Yeah. Also at a moment which is tragic, too, to have something almost comic at that point was uh, interesting, but I do love that song. It's Chiquitita. Chiquitita, you and I know. All the heartaches come and they go, and the stars are leaving. You will be dancing once again, and the pain will end. You will have no time for breathing. What does that even mean? Uh, it's a person's I name. think it's a person's name, but they had two with people's names. Fernando was another one, which <laughs> could have gone in the film anyway. And just they're peculiar. They're yeah. like war and could be the Spanish Civil War. And yeah. You don't usually associate that with ABBA. <laughs> I don't, unless I'm on mushrooms. Um, darker meaning behind yeah. the ABBA repertoire. Yeah. yeah, but listen to the lyrics, <laughs> they're, they're peculiar. Um, but I loved that. Funny enough, like a song like that would usually cost way too much than we could afford. So I wrote to Benny and Bjorn to, to, to say we can't really afford it, but uh, we made, you know, in Bruges and it's a film like that. And if you wouldn't mind your song being a part of something like that, uh, begging, begging. Can we have a discount? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they came back and said, well, can we see the scene? And okay. I said, well, yeah. But then I thought they might think it's a bit comic to just see just the see scene. That. So we saw, saw the very dark bit before that yeah. and the very dark bit after that to put it in a little bit of context for them. And they came back and practically gave it away. That's amazing. Yeah, it was like really, really wow. nice to them. Mm, mm. That's good. What a lovely story. Thank you for yeah. sharing that with us. you 
There's also a moment where Sam sings. Oh, Again, yes, it's, yes. It's a little, is that right? I think it's a little homage to De Niro. Very good. Yes, what have you been watching? <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. I'm well, in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, we, Sam and I both love um, Bang the Drum Slowly, which is an early uh, De Niro mm. film from the good period. And, I mean, it's an old folk tune, maybe? I think so. I know Johnny Cash did a version. Yeah. And, like, just two or three days before the scene, we, we were just talking about the film and don't even know we were talking about the song. And that was kind of an improv in the car because we were supposed to be just driving along and, and we did it once and it was all good. And then I said, well, just be talking to yourself, so, you know, whatever yeah. you, you might be saying on a, on a patrol. And then he started singing the song. But then he, uh, we, he's always doing impressions of Christopher Walken as well. So at the end of each verse or each line, he was doing uh, bits from The Deer Hunter. Oh, my favourite film ever. Yeah, and so those, uh, those loud mao, mao are, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, Vietnamese guys slapping uh, Oh, my God, to the Russian and, roulette. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. So that's like two for, uh, two De Niro's in one, that scene. As I was walking down the streets of Laredo, mao! I walked out in Laredo one day. Now! I spied a young cowboy all wrapped in white All wrapped in white And the As I walked out on the streets of Laredo. As I walked out on Laredo one day. I spied a young cowboy all wrapped in white linen, wrapped in white linen as cold as the clay. I can see by your outfit that you are a cowboy. These words he did say as I boldly walked by. Come and sit down beside me and hear my sad story. I'm shot in the breast, and I know I must die. Martin McDonough on Sam Rockwell's musical moments on the multiple award-winning Three Billboards. Disney Pixar has brought film fans so much joy over the years, with Coco, the latest in the production line to garner Oscar success in the animation category. It was a brainchild of studio stalwart Lee Unkridge, who joined us along with producer Darla Anderson in episode 75, as well as discussing Michael Giacchino's flamboyant score and the original songs written for the film. Lee also talked about some of his musical influences, one of which is certainly not family friendly. What about you, Lee, in terms of the films that you remember watching growing up that resonated with you and the music being part of that reason? I know you're a big Shining fan. Yeah, I love The Shining. <laughs> and the music's a big part of yeah. why that film is so affecting.
mean, she was ahead of her time in terms of electronic music and, and that. Oh, Wendy Carlos, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, there's that music and so much other kind of creepy music that wasn't, most of the music in The Shining wasn't written to be part of a movie. You know, it's a lot of 20th century avant-garde composers. Christoph Penderecki in particular. He's fantastic. shows you what an effect music can have on a movie. I think about it all the time. It's so interesting that certain types of notes or rhythms can give us a certain feeling, and that can enhance the storytelling of a movie. I mean, you could take the same scene and lay five different pieces of music over it and have the audience feel five different things. It's really kind of remarkable. films I saw as I was in college learning to be a filmmaker that were affecting from a musical perspective one of my favorite films is All That Jazz directed by Bob Fosse which is a very musical film very rhythm driven had a big influence on me Drunk Love a lot, oh, the Paul I Thomas Anderson film. film, and John Bryan did this amazing, quirky, off-center score. Yeah, when I think of a lot of movies that I really love, like, I don't know of any movies that I love where I say, oh, I didn't really like the music in it. Like, <laughs> yeah. they all have great music. Disney Pixar's Lee Unkridge, another studio that bashes out monster hit after monster hit, is Marvel. We'll hear from the Russo brothers about Avengers Infinity War in just a moment, but first, it's the turn of the fantastic Ryan Coogler, director of Black Panther, widely regarded as the most important of the Marvel films, given its predominantly black cast. It boasts a fantastic score by Ludwig Göransson, which saw him travel extensively through Africa to imbue it with authenticity. 
and some great collaborators when it comes to music as well. Yes, ma'am. Um, you know, first and foremost, starting with Ludwig Gorenson, who's our composer. You know, Ludwig is a very close friend of mine. I've been working with him since I was in film school, and it's been amazing to kind of see his star rise in, in really three industries. You know, because he started working in television, you know, scoring community, and then becoming a music producer, yeah. you know, working with uh, Donald Glover with Childish Gambino and, and working with Haim and, you know, really just having an effect and shaping the sound of some really mm. influential artists and, and then working on movies with me, with Fruitville and doing other stuff with Teddy Shapiro, then with Creed as well and now with this. Usually, I always give him a draft for the script. You know, almost as soon as I finish my first draft, like wow. he, he gets it early. That early? You know, um, yeah, and, and and we like to get started like yeah. as soon as possible. He he and he and I are close friends, man. Like when I didn't have a place in LA, I would stay at his house whenever I came to town. And on this film, I had to be in LA a lot. So so my wife and I got like Airbnb that was close to where he where he lives with yeah. his fiance, so I could you know drive back and forth. We could listen to music and talk ideas. And you know, almost as soon as he got the script. He and his fiance just left and went to West Africa and spent the Christmas in um in Senegal. Wow! Uh, and just started working. We were recording artists there. And what a lot of people don't know about him is he actually already studied in, in, on the continent of Africa. I think he spent some time in Guinea. Yeah. As a matter of fact, learning how to play a specific drum. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This journey for him was intense because he was out there for I think like a, like a month and a half on the continent of Africa in Senegal, and then he went, and he went to South Africa as well and was you know set up a recording shop there and was collaborating with different artists there, Amazing. studying you know what I mean. And, and a big challenge for us was how to use some of these sounds and combine them with, with orchestral music to find a feel for the for the film. Thank you. 
Ryan Coogler on Ludwig Gordonson's much lauded score for Black Panther, which brings us neatly onto the Russo brothers, directors of Avengers Infinity War, which at the time of writing is the fourth highest grossing film ever. Anthony and Joe were great fun, and while I hadn't been allowed to see the whole film when I interviewed them, the footage I did see featured a brilliant musical moment. Last night when, when, I, when I got to see the footage, which I got to watch twice, which is amazing, is it the Detroit Spinners, the track that, that we hear in the scene where the Guardians discover Thor? Robert Van Lyn. Yeah. What a tune. Yeah. When it comes to things like that, needle drop type things, is that fun? Is that a fun element to to when you have to find things like that or pieces of music? Do you work together on that? You've got music supervisor, I guess, as well, who might throw things your way. Yeah, I mean, we're, we, we, you know, we grew up in Cleveland. <laughs> Cleveland's a big music city, yeah. you know, so we, we, we love music, you know, so needle drops are a particular favorite of ours. And yes, we do, but we do work with a lot of very talented music supervisors who help supply ideas. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll play songs on set very often we do while we're shooting Great. to help give ourselves and, and our crew and our camera operators and the actors a sense of the rhythm and the tone for a scene and sometimes we'll go through a big uh, experimenting process in post you know about what song works right just because you use a song on set yeah. to set a tone doesn't mean you have to stick with that song in the edit so it's sometimes it evolves and sometimes it stays the same as our original uh, ideas sounds like a party vibe on set uh, it is. You want to create energy, and I think tone, especially in a movie that's totally complicated, is easily identified through music, which is why we play it on set. Sometimes we'll loop a song all day long, because that's the tone we're trying to drive out of that scene, and the scene takes us all day to shoot. And it works for the actors. It's great, because they, they kind of can settle into a space every time they hear it, and they understand what it is that we're trying to do. That song in particular is a little bit of choreography to it, so it was important that the actors uh, all had earwigs and were wired into the music and, and knew what, exactly what was going on with it, referring to Rubber Band Man. Hand me down the walking cane, hand me down my hat. Hurry now and don't be late, cause we ain't got time to chat. You and me, we're going out to catch the latest sound. Guaranteed to blow your mind so high. It's an exploratory process, too, because sometimes the tone you set on set is not the tone you want when you get in the edit room, as Ann said, and then you go hunting a little bit. But we have a vast music library. We use a lot of music on shows like Arrested Development, Community. It's important to us. We grew up uh, a music family and grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, so rock is in our blood. And, uh, <laughs> 
You know, I think Cleveland's the only city in the world that pro that has 11 classic rock stations. <laughs> you just go from one to the next on the dial. There's nothing else. Yeah. That's amazing. What kind of stuff did you play on set then? What were the kind of what were the artists or the tunes or that you, you were playing on set? You know, it's such a wide variety of stuff. You know, sometimes Stairway to Heaven was on a loop for like three days. Yeah, because there was. You a... never want to hear it ever again. <laughs> we won't tell you what scene we used it for, but it was on a loop for three days. brothers on the music they played to get their massive A-list cast in the mood on set. Next up is Greta Gerwig, whose acting work I'm a huge admirer of. Her debut as a writer-director, Ladybird, garnered widespread critical acclaim and also features a quite brilliant soundtrack. I listened to your soundtrack for Ladybird <laughs> and it was like a time machine. Yes. It's so emotive, even just listening to the music that's mm -hmm. been picked for the film as well. Mm -hmm. And the film itself, I think, you use that Tennessee Williams thing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a good good art can take you home. That's mm -hmm. what the film is. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, that's a thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, with the music in particular, the, the, the songs I chose, it was very important to me that the songs felt like songs that someone in Sacramento, California would listen to yeah. in around 2002, and then it not be an adult picking music for teenagers <laughs> that they'd never listened to. I think sometimes that happens in films because you don't get to make a film usually until you're in your late 20s or early 30s and then mm -hmm. you give yourself retroactively better like or more obscure things yeah, than you so would have cooler. had. Yeah, I don't want to say better because like 
I love all the music in this movie, but I just wanted it to have that real sincerity. Justin Timberlake. Yes. You wrote him this uh, yeah. letter. Mm -hmm. We yeah. actually spoke to Andrea Arnold, who made oh, American yeah. Honey. She did a similar thing with Rihanna. Oh, did but she we really? we found love. She wrote her letter and said, oh. please, can we have the song for the film? She said, yes. Oh, that's so wonderful. There's some good guys out yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that makes me so happy. It's funny, I feel like musicians have been incredibly kind to me. I had a sense that I could do that, I guess based on when I'd worked with Noah Baumbach on Francis Han, Mistress America. I mean, Paul McCartney has always been incredibly kind and David Bowie was kind yeah. to us. And you know, I, I thought like, well, I'll, I'll try this. And it worked, you got Cry Me A River. Yes. You were my son, you were my earth. Took a chance, made of a plan. But I bet you didn't think that they would come crashing down. No, Everyone who I reached out to was just lovely. Alanis Morissette, Justin Timberlake, Dave Matthews, Ani DeFranco. That Monkey's Tracks yeah. really special as well. Yeah, oh God, yeah. Carol King is singing on it mm. um, too. I think so much of filmmaking is you, you say, well, I might as well try. I mean, people could say no, but why don't we see if, see if we could get a yes? But the, the nice thing about acting as training for being a filmmaker is you just, you get so used to hearing no that it doesn't bother you anymore. You, you get really immune to it. You're yeah. like, well, well, fine. It's a no. I don't know. But I, I get I get not hired for jobs all the time. <laughs> um, I'm really, really used to it. Greta Gerwig, who was an utter pleasure to meet. 
Our next guests were ruthlessly stalked on social media, but I'm glad they responded positively to my advances. Duncan Jones and Clint Mansell formed a formidable partnership on Moon and collaborated once again on the Netflix vehicle Mute. The pair of them joined me from Los Angeles and were on fine, fine form. You say there's certain pieces of music that you wanted to get in there and that Philip Glass's interpretation of is it is wonderful and it's one of a couple of albums that he did as a tribute to your dad. But with the other tracks in there as well, there's a beautiful trinket box version of a Nirvana song in there as well. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really stunning. And it's in a weird place as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it accompanies quite a dark moment and, a, and quite a powerful moment in the movie. juxtaposition is in a, in a way something we played around with in Moon yeah. Yeah. Um, where we yeah. had a where we had a, a we used a lullaby Clint came up with this beautiful lullaby for the reveal of uh, what we called Sam's nursery yeah um, and, and it was kind of a it, it worked so well in that it's I just I couldn't help reusing it because I'm a hack <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, was, it was beautiful beautiful it was Because the world that you've created in, in what is this kind of near future dystopian Berlin, kind of where it's, it's sort of set, it almost does kind of feel like it could be a child's interpretation of, of living in a city like Berlin at that time. Is that what you were trying oh, to Oh, thanks, do Edith. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a child's drawing. <laughs> it's special. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a small boy trying to make spaghetti. <laughs> Try harder next time, Doug. No, I'm going to put oranges in it. Oranges would be delicious. But you know where colours are more vibrant than... 
in the reality of them and buildings take on different shapes and forms yeah just like that kind of fantastical world that a child can see a place through that more more through the, your, your eyes than a child creating it <laughs> well no i mean the truth is that one of the real benefits of shooting in berlin is berlin is an extraordinary city and there's nowhere quite like it right now and i think ever since i've been there and kind of been back there over the decades it's always been a city that feels like it's looking towards the future and what's happening next. They're not that interested in where they are now, or, and they're certainly not interested in where they've been. Um, they're much more interested about where they're going. And it makes for interesting architecture, it makes for interesting people, you know, the people who gravitate towards Berlin. And we really sort of found ourselves shooting on location around the city an awful lot and not having to do a huge amount to actually take it into the future. Duncan Jones and Clint Mansell, who also joined me solo from Air Studios earlier in our run. On which note, we like to get out and about with soundtracking whenever we can and have just announced bi-monthly events at the British Film Institute on London South Bank, which is incredibly exciting news indeed. Now, one such Q&A took place after a special screening of Annihilation with director Alex Garland and his composers, Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury. Now, Alex has a very exacting way of working on his soundscapes, which, while challenging, affords great rewards. When you watch the film, the music, the vision and the sound are so entwined that you can't imagine one without the other. And we would be lying if we said it was easy, because <laughs> it isn't. And Alex knows that, and we know that. It was the same on Ex Machina to a degree and even more so on this one that it offers us a chance to be part of the film in a way that I don't think a lot of composers get the chance to be you know so from the very first cut very first rough assembly we're there as part of a very small team of people you know there's Barney the editor and Jan McCulloch the music editor and, and us three in an edit suite you know and we're part of that we're not just bolted on at the end and the difficulty with that is that you write the music for the film ten times over and, and you, you all make collective decisions that a certain part of it maybe needs to change because of you've come to a decision about the narrative journey that the film's happening and once you pull that pillar down everything else following it collapses and, and then you've got to start again and there are so many examples of that on this film but hopefully for the right reasons it's a hard thing but it's a good thing it was really funny actually i can remember uh, alex saying this is going to be the hardest thing that we've ever done and we went yeah right. yeah yeah yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we did ex machinum with you mate we, we know <laughs> yeah no he wasn't lying he yeah. was... <laughs> how do you know when it is right how do you know when to stop <laughs> Yeah, it's still. If I watch it, I've still got things. That, really? Yeah, a couple of things. Yeah. Yeah, you just stop. At a yeah. certain point, you just stop. Yeah. But also, sometimes it is right. You just yeah. say, "Yeah, that's it. Good, done."
Alex Garland, Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow at the Everyman Cinema in Hampstead, London as guests on Soundtracking Live. Now head to the BFI website for details of the first of our regular events on London South Bank, the first of which is happening next month, September, with Lenny Abramison and his production team. Another composer for you now in the shape of bright young thing, Daniel Pemberton. Now I chatted to Daniel in his London studio about his blossoming career, which includes the score to Steve Jobs among an impressive list of credits. Can we talk about Steve Jobs? Because it was it was incredible in, in terms of that, you know, the three acts of it all almost and kind of trying to have different I guess different scores for each of those and it was really brilliant hearing you t- describe them and I think you were kind of, you know, give you an opportunity and one of them to kind of be the eighties keyboard wizard that you'd always wanted to be and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that was me living my Vangelis from Michelle Shaw fantasies. <laughs> your idea in terms of these this this sounding different for each kind of almost decade kind of thing yeah i met with danny and you know i read the script and he talked about how he's going to do each act very differently and i just thought well it seems a no like let's try and do every act musically differently i like like again it's like how do you give something some kind of identity like how how can you make a film feel special yeah and you know ideas like that like a really strong way in because the thing about doing a film is like having a blank piece of paper and if someone says draw me a picture draw me 10 pictures you're like i don't know what i could draw anything but if you say draw me 10 cars you're like okay i can draw 10 cars and make them really cool or mm-hmm. i don't know whatever i'm going to do but you're going to remember it hey that guy did i know this is a bad metaphor but like hey do you remember that painting of 10 cars yeah great rather than like do you remember those 10 random paintings that didn't make any sense or look like every other painting <laughs> um so for me that's a strong way in to start off how I'm going to approach a score and like like have an idea like try and come up with some kind of concept in my head of what I want it to sound like and then start exploring that kind of sound world or melodic world and I love the idea of going from technology and like the birth of technology and the limitations and excitement of technology in the 80s which felt it was really exciting like synthesizers and computers it felt like the future like nothing really feels like the future anymore like the things that feel like the future are really depressing like weird social media apps whereas that sound was really exciting so i wanted to capture and also the launch of the mac you know it's like this whole new world which has basically from that point transformed our world now so i wanted to capture that that spirit then we have a second act I wanted to capture this like P.T. Barnum aspect of like Steve Jobs which is this like 
showman and create this very kind of grand operatic sound. And then by the third act, I wanted to kind of do the digital world we live in now, which is just doing everything on the iMac. So you like to get in as early oh, as Yeah, I mean, I was working before they were even filming. So Amazing. I was writing. Is that the dream? Yeah, it's kind of the dream. I mean, well, the real dream isn't to say, hey, hey Dan, we've got this movie. It's got to be finished next week. Um, <laughs> uh, can you just come up with a really great idea? And you do it. First idea, and they have to take it. And it's brilliant, and it works. That's the dream. Okay. But it's no, never <laughs> really going to happen. Yeah. yeah, no, I like having a lot of time. So on that, as soon as I got the script, I was on board. I was writing. Danny was shooting it in order as well. So he was doing act one, then act two and act three. So I was sending him stuff while he was on set. And he'd send me notes. He sends really good notes. He's a very diligent director, Danny. And it was going really well, which was annoying because I was going to go out to San Francisco and hang out with everyone on set. <laughs> and they were basically like, we don't want to send you out because it's going really well. So we want you to keep doing what you're doing. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was looking forward to a little trip to San Francisco to hang out with Michael Fassbender. <laughs> Didn't happen. No, I just sat at home, oh, feeling mate. very unglamorous. Then you got to go and do the, you know, the press tour though, and hang out with them all. So you, yeah, hang out a bit. No one really cares about composers. <laughs> I do. Yeah, you I do. Really this do. is great. I really do. Composer Daniel Pemberton on his multifaceted score for Steve Jobs, which brings us towards the end of our retrospective, marking the 100th episode of Soundtracking, with just a legend that is Brad Bird to go. Now, I had a great time talking to Brad about Incredibles 2, another Pixar film scored by Michael Giacchino, who clearly brings a lot to the creative process. What were the conversations that you had, though, in terms of, you know, you have this wonderful framework that was was the first Incredibles film and, and you're going on to Incredibles 2 mm -hmm. and you want to use things that are already existing to a point but you also Oh you mean a, themes from the first movie? Yeah and how much you use Yeah well Michael has very strong opinions about this and it's it's uh, interesting to get into talks with him because he's, he's primarily a filmmaker who specializes in music um, because he thinks about the whole film. He doesn't only think about the music. He mm. thinks about the whole film and how 
music interfaces with it. He's really a storyteller, another storyteller on the project. And he is also a fan of movie music. And what he admires about someone like John Williams doing Empire Strikes Back, that he had some very famous and well-known uh, light motives from the first movie. But he didn't lean on them for the second movie. He came up with some of his greatest themes, like the Imperial March, for the second movie. So he didn't lazily sit there and replay. Uh, he used it occasionally if he wanted to touch on something that you knew from the first movie and play emotionally with it. But he didn't need it. He, he had other things that he could play with. And Michael does that for this movie. He touches on The Incredibles themes at, at the right moment, but he has a lot of new music in this that plays with um, the, the unique things to this story. So he's of that ilk mm. to me. But you know what I find interesting is that when I was listening, you know, you mentioned Iron Giant, you know, it, that was my first feature film that I had done. And it went, I went through the same process where we had a certain amount of money that we could spend and you had to find out who, who could handle the job best with the amount of money that we had. And we got a lot of different, uh, uh, some, you know, very experienced uh, people in. And then we had some up-and-comers uh, who were new composers who were trying to get their way to the more A projects. And you could tell uh, when the filmmaking was bad because the music was unfocused, which was funny. And I remember there was one film, I won't say who the actors are, but two well-known good actors are having a fight scene. I'm looking at this sample music, and on the reel was a fight scene between these two very good actors that I will not name. <laughs> For instance, uh, I don't want to expose the composer. Well, actually, the composer is working hard. I don't want to badmouth the director. <laughs> uh, it's really, that's the problem. And the, the scene was so um, not well shot, and there was nothing emphasized in the way it was staged or, or shot. And the composer is working hard to find something musically to hang on to, and the music's kind of going. And you're going, geez, 
do something. But it's because the action on the screen is literally that. There's no emphasis. There are no accents. There's no moment of a pause or a, a change in tone. Mm -hmm. And at one point, one of the characters has to leap across a little chasm. And at that moment, the, the, the music guy leaps on that like a starving dog on a, on a piece of meat. He's going, and you know, then it's back to because there's nothing happening visually. And a lot of my favorite composers like John Williams, their best scores are always for well-directed films. And their weakest scores are always for poorly directed films. Mm -hmm. And they are musically nice. They're very professional. You know, he's a brilliant composer. But the structure of a good film uh, prompts good musical structure. Yeah. And bad structure, when you have to hang music to it, there are very few instances where really bad movies have had great scores. There are some, but they're few and far between. And if you notice that all of the John Williams scores that we remember best are really great movies that he's attaching and supporting, uh, attaching to and supporting. So uh, that to me is interesting. I think that great music is prompted by really good filmmaking. Rounding off our best of soundtracking, that's incredible too, writer-director Brad Bird, who is just one of the many luminaries we've spoken to over the past couple of years. My huge thanks to all of our guests for taking the time to talk to us. One of the great pleasures of making this podcast is watching faces light up when I explain that we're about to talk about music. A huge thank you to you for listening. The support we've received during our first couple of years has been, well, I have to say quite overwhelming. Please continue to spread the word on your socials and subscribe and rate us on iTunes if you get a moment. Every little helps. So onwards and upwards and kicking off our next 100 episodes is actor, writer and director, the one and only Mr Paddy Considine. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.